Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we've got a very cool episode that was inspired by a very cool performance coming up in Los Angeles soon. It's David Longstreth in conversation with Phil Elvrum. Now, Longstreth is the focal point of the band Dirty Projectors, which formed about 20 years ago in Brooklyn, and was part of a scene that kind of elevated indie pop into something more serious and timeless. It's been clear throughout the years that Longstreth is a musical searcher, having never been content to repeat himself. That's led to an incredibly varied catalog that can even border unpleasantly confusing. And the huge undertaking that he's in the midst of, and the starting point of this conversation, is no exception. About 10 years ago, Longstreth began working on what I'd guess you'd call a contemporary classical song cycle called Song of the Earth, which he performed with the ensemble Stargaze a few years back. He's since been refining and reworking the piece, and along with 30 Projectors and the world-renowned L.A. Philharmonic, he'll perform it on March 2nd at the Walt Disney Concert Hall in L.A., That's a huge group of people and a massive undertaking, and not to be missed. At almost the opposite end of the spectrum will be that evening's opening act, Mount Eerie, a.k.a. renowned minimalist songwriter Phil Elvrum. Elvrum is almost a mythical figure in indie rock, having forged a truly unique path over the past decade, first under the name The Microphones and later Mount Eerie. His music is often deeply personal, and he'll move from simply structured indie folk into fully immersive lo-fi drones in ways that can confound and disarm. His catalog is wide and deep, though if you're unfamiliar with his music, a good place to start is 2001's The Glow Part 2. At this concert, he'll not only open the show for Dirty Projectors, but he'll also, as you'll hear, participate a little bit, because Longstreth tapped Elvrum to help out on a Song of the Earth piece called Twin Aspens. They were nice enough to give us a preview of the piece here, so check out a little bit of a not-quite-final version of Twin Aspens, composed by Longstreth and with some help from Elvrum. We might be going to have lived A long, long time from now Now As you'll hear in this conversation, these guys are deeply immersed in music, and certainly not just pop music. From hearing them chat, I learned about Japanese gagaku music, among other things. They also talk at length about Elvrum's incredible album-length song, Microphones in 2020, which is essentially a history of his own evolution with a fascinating visual to go along with it. They also talk a lot about starting the creative process with a palette in mind, which I found fascinating as well. Enjoy the chat, and if you're in the LA area, I think there are a few tickets left for this once-in-a-lifetime performance on March 2nd. Enjoy. Hi, Dave. Hey, Phil. How are you? Good. Is your mouth numb? Is your face numb? No, no. It was relatively painless and brief. A routine, routine cleaning. I'd been putting it off for some months as I've been just in the tunnel trying to finish the song of the earth. Yeah. You still in it? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I'm still in it. I'm mixing still now, and I feel like the the writing... And the arranging is just messily continuing into the into the mix. Mm-hmm. Wow, you're writing while mixing. That's no good. I mean, yeah, finding new words, finding new vocal melodies, um, mostly that. Some some different sort of like layering of 
of like elements that I've already recorded. But yeah, there's like, there's got to be a point when it stops. I've almost found it. I feel like that's the main question of all art forms, like what music, painting, sculpture, whatever. It's like, when do you just like call it? Yeah. That's, and people ask me that all the time, like, oh, how do you know? Like that's, there's not really a cool answer for it other than like intuition. Right. Intuition. And just it's done when it's done. So I've had recordings where that comes in a flash earlier than I might expect. This is done. Mm -hmm. I'm going to walk, you know, backwards out of the room now. Yeah. But the quote that I've been remembering in the last week or so is um, that idea that a poem is never finished, Mm -hmm. only abandoned. Oh, yeah. That's good. Something about these songs, it does feel like I could play with this palette for a really long time. I could sort of trace circles and and things like that. And so it really, like, for me, I'm like, all right, I kind of got to abandon it at this point. I have so many questions about this piece of music you're in the middle of. Not only that piece of music, but like the process at all. Your process in general, but it seems like this thing you're working on now. I I know we're going to struggle to fit this into the one episode, but or maybe we can just scratch the surface. But yeah, it seems like your process for making a regular album, if you've ever made one, is out the window for this. This seems like a very unique opportunity and approach to... So is the palette the thing that comes early in the process is, and is established? I think so. The palette. Yeah, the first things that happen are just are kind of sitting with the guitar or the piano or whatever, just making chords, making melodies. I have to, well, I want to get into this, but before we do, I just want to say that I was listening, I was re-listening to Microphones in 2020 this morning, and it was hitting me the way it has both of the times that I've, I've like sat and we've projected it onto the big wall in our house <laughs> nice, and just watched it front to back. And just like that, it just like, that's one of my favorite things that's been made. The video, the YouTube with all the pictures, you mean? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. The storytelling that's happening, the pacing of it, the sense of this like large work that's patiently unfolding. Mm -hmm. And then just the the way you've paired it with these pictures that you've been taking like your whole life. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's this thing that you've been readying for your whole whole life. Kind of, yeah. And that's something you sort of talk about in Microphones in 2020. You sort of say like, yeah, like. This was the beginning of this oh, yeah. thing that's been my, my whole life. So, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. No, it's really uh, spirals in on itself. It's really meta or, yeah, it was like so many layers deep of self, what's the word, like navel gazing kind of or trying to understand what is not just me, but like this this life of a creative process hopefully in a way that was relatable but yeah that i was gonna say about that it seems like this huge undertaking but in some ways it wasn't actually that different than making a regular album it was actually easier because it was only two chords instead of like a whole bunch of songs with all these different chords (laughs) i had like the the foundation was just done and i just erased all the track breaks between all the songs it's like an album length thing Wait, really? It, like literally? No. No, no, not literally. I just I just mean yeah. thinking about it on, on that scale. And I, I, maybe for you, this Song of the Earth thing you're working on feels related to making like an album. Because y- you make albums. Like you're not making um, singles and putting out like a single, or maybe you do that too, but making yeah. an hour-long piece or yes. 40 minutes or whatever. I yeah. feel like that's um, 
that's the time scale that I think of these things that I make and they have arcs and flows. And when I'm like nearing completion of an album, I'm sort of putting it in order and being like, oh, okay, this transitional thing is needed here and this yeah. piece needs to move to there. Microphones in 2020 was like that as well. It just was, uh, happened to be one song. And I did a lot of arranging just on paper. I didn't do any uh, demoing. Uh, on music it was all on paper but like moving scraps of lyrics around and it felt like arranging <laughs> maybe like the way people write movie scripts or something with all their note cards pinned to the bulletin board and moving <laughs> sections around yeah never done that but it did feel like that and then of course i had photos as references too which I ended up just using for that video there was a closer correspondence of image and like lyric that i was feeling this time hmm than I had noted before. You're talking about like Anacortes in the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. And it's a picture of you like riding a bike <laughs> yeah. on the main street there. It's very literal. Very literal. But then there's a line around it that's something about like fuel or gas. But in that photo, there's a shell station in the back. <laughs> yeah. Or an Exxon. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, oh man, like, yeah. And you, in the moment, you're like, Kurt Cobain had died. Uh huh. And I had my license and a girlfriend. Yeah. And it's a picture of a girl in, in a car. It was more like movie making, honestly, than I had like noted somehow. The first, it, was, it was like, it, it feels both super impressionistic and dreamy. And there's enough space between the image and the word mm-hmm. that there's like an abstraction mm-hmm. that feels so full to me, hmm. which is... I guess, yeah, something that I've been thinking about in scoring some of these movies recently is like the level of tightness between the image and the and the sound when there's a when there's a great distance between the two. It for someone like me, I love that because my mind is trying to take two signposts and figure out how they're related. Definitely. And there's a huge gulf in there to to dream. You know? Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Exactly. Yeah, I think about it in the same way. I, I love that, too. I think of it like triangulation, where you can't actually say the thing. So you yeah. have to use these two other reference points to sort of like point at it, or more than two reference points. So yeah, I love that, that varying gap between like literal representation and uh, just saying the thing or kind of like pointing at it. That's, I guess, what, what like poetry is, or abstract art is yeah i guess all art forms are on this continuum of like how on the nose is it (laughs) and how much can you expect the viewer or listener to like make that leap with you and what is that leap like are it you you say it's dreamy that's exactly right it like that's what art does it pulls the carpet out from under you you're like not sure what this artist is saying but i feel weird right now (laughs) and with microphones in 2020 it's doing this thing where you know we're we're you're carrying us along on a narrative string. You're talking about you're back when you were 20. Mm-hmm. But then also there's this other, there's, you know, there's this whole other, like a big subterranean cavern that we're also exploring at the same time. And I guess that's what I was feeling about the correspondence with the photos this time is that there is that sort of like inviting disjunct between the story that you're telling and the images you're showing. But then I was also like, wait, it's doing the other thing too, which is Mm -hmm. like, it is quite literal in its own way. But I feel like also I should say, if people who are listening don't, don't know this YouTube video that we're talking about is, is just a video that Phil made for his sort of album length song microphones in 2020. 
And when I first saw it, I was like, this is like Madonna or something. <laughs> what? How? <laughs> because it's like doing the thing where it's like entirely musical, but then it's also entirely, it's a, it's a true like multimedia thing. It, to me, it's completed in the, in the video. There's a third image that comes out of mm. the picture or the, the music and the picture mm -hmm. together. It's sort of the realm of like pop art, right? Mm. To be visual as well as uh, musical. And it's not really like traditionally a hallmark of the culture formerly known as independent, <laughs> independent music, <laughs> indie rock, to be, to achieve that, achieve is a, is a loaded word, but to do that thing. People make music videos, even quote unquote indie people. I, I always love the idea of them, but just like, I guess I've made a few, but yeah, it felt like this potential art form, a music video, like a, a video, a little movie that goes with your song that you also care deeply about and also the album art you think about and so that you can make a little movie about it. But it, it was almost daunting. I view it as like as a big deal, but mostly I think music videos function as advertisements <laughs> or, you know, they fall pretty flat artistically, usually. Yeah, a lot of the time they do. I, I've made a bunch of music videos with Domino, my old record label, and there's that sort of like up to a point productive rub between the record label wanting something, as you're saying, that's essentially an advertisement, and me in my head wanting to consider it an extension of, you know, the expression. Mm -hmm. And music videos are so frustrating because the budgets are so small. And like I've spent, you, you know, sort of like my whole life, like figuring out <laughs> who, like what kind of music I want to make and way, way less time doing that, like cinematographically, filmically, whatever. And so, you know, I'm proud of, of some of the videos that we've made particularly the Overlord video from 2020. I think that turned out super, super good. I'll watch that. We filmed it in New York City in late February of 2020. Nice. <laughs> and we were like in these very dense public places. Like I remember um, on the plane back, there were a lot of people like coughing. And I was like, wait, oh, man. there's like a virus or something. <laughs> but, um, but it's to say, yeah, I mean, microphones in 2020, it doesn't feel like a music video. It just, it feels like an extension of the poem in just like a very like organic and deep and like beautiful way. And that's what I mean, that it's like Madonna in that way. It feels like it's completed. Uh, can you explain the Madonna thing? Because I don't, she's not the first artist that comes to mind when I think of like fully manifested, completed, whole artist. Maybe it doesn't make a ton of sense as a <laughs> reference, but I think that in the 80s, there was a sort of like, I don't know, in this sort of like Warholian way, like the art is the person. Mm, yeah. And it's all of these different things that the person does. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of just how the person is in their life. You're not going to catch the art in if you're just listening to the song mm -hmm. necessarily, or that's not, that's like one attribute of it. Right. But aren't there tons of pop stars that are kind of doing the, that same full immersion. I am, you know, like celebrities in general. Isn't yeah. that the idea? I think now the definitely. Queen of England. Wait, what'd you say? The Queen of England. Like a person that's just, <laughs> that's, that's just like, they don't exist anymore. Their actual self, their, the facade, the role is, is all there is. That's all that's left. Yeah. 
Yeah. You're inhabiting an idea. I guess that's what I mean. It's just a very rarefied, no, I don't have the language. Um, it's just, it's a really obscure thing to become the whole for your life and your sort of body and your incidental mind to sort of cease to exist and you become this idea or this entity. It's a really, I mean, I guess now we're maybe starting to talk about something else, but I feel like that is the, the ideal of the, of the pop star mm -hmm. at this point. It's interesting to think about how my little YouTube video with flipping through my, my four by six photos fits into this, but it does. It's just, I'm, I tried to do it in a different way. I, tr I think I tried to have it both ways where I wasn't going for a facade. I wasn't going for like building a mythological version of myself. Yeah. I was just trying to like, here's, here's actual me. And um, here are also my deeper thoughts and examinations, like what it even means to talk about actual me. Here's some photos of that life, but also yeah. here's a lot of poetic ambiguity for you to fill in yeah. and get lost in. Also, I should say that video we're talking about was an afterthought. I made the song, yeah. not re not really consulting the photos that much. I think a lot of them just were like in my mind already, yeah. know, knowing them as reference points. And then after the song was done, I was like, oh, I should make a little kind of teaser thing to put on YouTube and started going through the photos. And it ended up just being, I spent three weeks organizing the photos exactly measure by measure mm -hmm. to every lyric. And that was really fun. That might be one of the reasons that it just, it hit me in such a big way is that I totally feel, yeah, I feel what you're saying. You're not trying to make a mythological version. You're not presenting yourself as an idea of something or, you know, obviously anything to buy into or whatever. And yet like lines, like I took my breakfast to the porch of the punk house to, yeah. to the couch on the porch of the punk house are just like iconic. They are iconic, but also it it's it's true. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I feel that like living in you know going and, and living with my brother, you know, in Portland and sleeping in the hallway at at the Clinton Street house, Rip City, Rip City. Yeah, I remember that house, and it feels universal in a way. That's like so many people's late teens, totally. Early yeah, 20s. Yeah, that, that's what I was going for. I, it would be embarrassing if I made that whole long album and expected people to listen to the minutiae of my circumstances and be yeah. like, gaze upon me. I'm significant. Yeah. You know, I, I was going for relatability and depth and something universal. And so, yeah, I tried. No, I feel, I feel that. I feel like I'm making you feel embarrassed or something. But I just, I think there's something selfless about telling your very specific experience mm -hmm. and understanding that, yeah, there's probably something bigger in here, something that, that stands for a lot of us. I like diving into the kind of minutia, the dates and names, like the hyper autobiographical. I, I'm done with that now, by the way. <laughs> after, yeah. after that, I want like, I want to get back into ambiguity and I just think that's such an interesting spectrum from this sort of like now scarred wave as I sometimes call it yeah into into yeah just the using language in a more open way mm -hmm. that I mean that's just that's so dynamic that that you know your work finds corners for both of those things anyway yeah, I just, Thanks. I love that one. Thank you. So thank you for, I'm sorry, I, I feel like I've, I've, I've contextualized it in a way that you don't quite 
Um, no, no, I'm I, I, not at all. You hit the nail on the head and you gave me lots of great compliments. <laughs> thank you. I, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I love it so much. So thank you for making it. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. I want to get back to this question about palette because mm. that is a way that I think about recording, like composition, recording projects early on. Yeah. Usually. Sometimes it's like, well, here's the like five instruments I own. Yeah. And I don't want to go buy a bunch of instruments. I want to see what I can do with this. Yeah. And that's usually been my mode. A couple of albums were more deliberate. Like, um, A Crow Looked at Me, I decided early on, like, here's my three sounds I'm going to use. And it's modeled after this one Will Oldham record that I just want to kind of take that palette and see if I can yeah. just use it. Piano, electric guitar, bass, drum machine. You, Your palette right now is like the L.A. Philharmonic. <laughs> or what it's a big it's a big palette yeah yeah um, and then also it seems like i heard a lot of gagaku japanese imperial court music compositionally i i just i couldn't believe that you found that in there because after i made that oh and so if you're listening to the conversation phil was kind enough to write some stuff on one of the tracks so he's He's guesting on one of the songs from Song of the Earth. Oh, by the way, real quick. Yeah. Am I supposed to do that live? If you're down, that'd be Yeah, definitely. That'd be amazing. Definitely. Okay. Well, we'll figure out like when you're when you're getting in. We have two rehearsals with LFL. One is the day before and then one is the morning of. Morning of. Okay. I mean, that would be that'd be sick and we can kind of like dial the logistics or whatever, but and maybe I'm I'm uh, sidestepping the question about palette a little bit, but only to return to it. One of the more hectic things about the last um, two months has been working on two versions of these songs simultaneously. Mm -hmm. One where we're with my buddy Bill Bertel reorchestrating the album for the LA Phil, you know, which is mm -hmm. like legitimately 
whatever, like 60 piece orchestra. And then also at the same time trying to finish mostly mixing, but as we started with some like writing and rewriting of the album itself, which is a different ensemble. It's a smaller ensemble. And so so coming back to the question of palette, this piece started started life when a buddy of mine in Berlin uh, has this um, kind of like new music chamber orchestra called Stargaze. And we've just been talking maybe since like for like 10 years almost, where it was, I want to write a piece for you. And he's like, oh, I want, I want you to write a piece for us. And finally, during the pandemic, it was like, all right, now's the time. And so, yeah, I mean, I was writing these songs very specifically for his ensemble, which is kind of like a sinfonietta, which I learned is a term that means like the orchestra, but just one of everything. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. But then it's a little bit light on some of the brass and there's no bassoon. And so this was the this was the color of it, you know, flute, who's also a piccolo, oboe, who's also an English horn, clarinet, who's also a bass clarinet, mm -hmm. French horn, who's also a trumpet, a trombone, who's also a bass trombone sometimes. You mean these musicians switch back and forth within the performance? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, string quintet, two percussionists, piano. And so this was sort of the palette, and I was writing it really fast because I had uh, procrastinated <laughs> a whole bunch. And uh, like my daughter had just been born, and I wasn't writing the piece for them. And what that procrastination made room for or allowed was for me not to be super is the super kind of executive function about the whole process um, and just sort of accept whatever I was sort of writing that day. I was like, this has to be in the piece because there's no time. And I'm sort of frantically trying to write this 45 minute uh, chamber piece. I found like a very different and to me kind of maybe older modality of writing melodically and in terms of the chords, older, I mean, like more when I was um, like when I was more just for this is maybe another thing that really hit me about microphones. in 2020. Sorry, I keep on talking about that. One. But um, this idea of a return, you mm. know, here on the sort of like doorstep of our middle age. Totally. The phrase that started all of microphones in 2020, the whole idea of it was. Yeah. A song that was on a previous album on Lost Wisdom Part 2, there's a song that has the line, now I'm back where I was when I was 20. And I was like, oh, there's more juice on that one. And that, that, that phrase just stuck in my head and that whole wow. long thing came from that. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, yeah, I, way too much to even really address as a as an independent topic. But just I feel having a having a, a kid has made me feel I just feel more kind of emotionally open or or like experiencing a lot an invitation to grow to reexamine the world and grow. I sort of feel like I'm like eighteen mm -hmm. again. I feel like the world is that much new for me totally yeah and i f i mean yeah through your whole sort of emerging adulthood or whatever like you feel like you have a sort of stable identity you feel like you have a relatively like your stance toward the world you know becomes more fixed or or stable and so like a really surprising thing about this moment you know particularly when alma was very very young is the sense of like wait a minute like 
I don't know any. I don't like this is all up for exploration. So good when you're when your certainties get just like demolished. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, the microphones in 2020 line where you're sort of like, I'm already I was already who I am mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah, there's there's yeah. a thread too through. But yeah, we what's interesting is the way that we're more than that same old self, like the undiscovered parts still. And just like who who knew that that was a, di- a dimension of life? It's 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 wonderful. But yeah, so you know, frantically sort of writing this piece and finding this earlier thread before I think I, I had made an album or played shows, and before I had a sort of like identity as dirty projectors or whatever. And I'm just writing these things that live between. They're not they're not like ordinary, or they're not like. They're just weird. They're weirder, I guess. They're less symmetrical. The moves are a bit more jagged. Mm-hmm. The leaps are a bit more intuitive or like harder to explain. I don't know how to talk about this. Without quite realizing it, I had a room full of people sitting in my head <laughs> thinking about, you know, like weighing in on each little decision I was I was going to be making. Do you mean that came with the like more established role and identity as the room full of yeah people checking in. Yeah, I know what you mean. And in this, I guess, you know, liminal moment, I wish that I found a better word than that. But yeah, those people weren't there. And mm-hmm. just getting back to this question of palette, one of the things that really excited me about this music from the jump was just like these colors that are that are here, just harmonically, even before we talk about orchestrating them. The colors that I was finding and didn't have time to second guess or judge, I ended up really being excited by. Yeah. At least on the Twin Aspens piece that I focused more on, but all throughout it, it seems like the use of space, tension, hanging, like emptiness. That's, I think, what clued me into the Gagaku reference, which I don't know if that's where you were aiming with that or if you were just like always going to be working with space. Yeah, the role of like wind blowing through the notes and the beats and the hits, the tension, the hanging. That's what I love about that old Japanese music is just like yeah. this waiting, the tension, the almost like scary, when's, the, when's that big drum going to get hit? <laughs> like yeah. once an hour. <laughs> the space in that music is, it feels like a different, different than... 2024. I love that headspace the, the, in the time scale of that music and everything. And then, but then, so after I made the, that, that part that we're talking about, and I think, by the way, that we're going to be able to either put like a work in progress version of this song, mm. Twin Aspens, that we're talking about, mm-hmm. either at the beginning of this episode or at the end of it. So, yeah, there will be a little bit of context for what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Although it's not done, I have to caveat that it's not done yet. <laughs> Yeah, when I found that sort of like flute line and then the way that low marimba and the and the big grand casa like and the string harmonics like hit with it. Yeah. I was like, what 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 is this? Like yeah. what am I what am I even like tracing or what is what am I doing? Like what right. where did this come from? It's not yeah. clearly music even, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's totally. it's like you're you're using these orchestral instruments to make yeah, I keep saying like wind through trees, but it is like a sound of nature. It's a sound you're making the wind instruments be like this high kind of ethereal thing, and then the the rhythmic like thwack of 
it's what even is this like where did, and then i was like oh maybe it's maybe it's kind of like on that gagaku tip and then when i shared it with you like that's not a word that i used right and you just you you heard it you heard yeah. it in there yeah i just i can't believe it's so so uh fortuitous uh or synchronicitous so and wait you had just gotten what's that flute called show the yeah. show yeah it's like a mouth right over here it's a uh, 17 bamboo reeds uh, that you blow into and it's each one has a note but the scale of it is all weird and the notes are all really close together and it's really hard to play and you have to like have a bowl of charcoal next to you while you're playing it to dry it out in between blows because the condensation messes with the little delicate reeds and i got an electric oh. warmer you know but the old style is a big metal thing of charcoal right next to you whoa there, it's on um it's used on the bjork drawing restraint soundtrack that she did Oh. It's featured prominently on there, but it's in that music. It's in that Gagaka music, and it always comes in like a minute or two into the piece at, at the moment when the music kind of blossoms. And I was always like, what is happening there? What is that sound? Almost like yeah. on a, a pump organ when you play high up on the scale, the high reeds that are all like clashy and yeah, or, or feedback, the way feedback, guitar feedback can kind of do that sometimes. Yeah, the harmonic, whatever the harmonic like sort of spectrum of the overtone of the reeds are just so, so unique. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it reminds me of like a Farfisa or something too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, organ resonant drones. I just remi remember this, uh, I don't know that much about him, but Gerard Griset, this composer who was, I think, yeah. trying to orchestrate what feedback does. Like listening closely to like long overtones in guitar feedback and then but like transposing it or trying to transcribe it with uh, orchestral instruments. Yeah, spectralism. It's a movement It coming after like Ligeti's, this a couple French composers. I don't totally understand what spectralism is even still. But uh, yeah, Tristan Marais and Griset. Griset has this piece called Vortex Temporum that's really, really beautiful and really, really crazy crazy music but yeah i wish i knew more about about spectralism like sort of yeah like looking at thinking about sound rather than through the prism of notes yeah thinking about it in terms of like yeah overtones or like seems like the p on twin aspen some of the high things happening in there are touching on that it's like doing both it's not it doesn't have to be an hour long where you like full immerse in it it can happen within a song too with words and movement and rhythm and yeah, you're doing it. I mean, I think it comes out of like maybe Ligeti. Ligeti had this thing that he called micro polyphony and where instead of the everybody, you know, say there's like 16 first violins or something and instead of playing the same line as they do in pretty much all orchestral music until then, so like each of the violins are playing a slightly different mm. variation and I think that he was inspired by early sort of like electronic or like early modular synthesis. And he was thinking about things in terms of, you know, envelopes and a ratio of pitch to noise and things like that. And he was enacting in some of those early orchestral pieces, just like principles of electronic music or like translating them in a poetic way into like people in the in the orchestra. But the irony of some of that, and like this is music that like I think everyone has heard like just in the 
in the culture. It's like in the in the 2001 soundtrack, things like um, Atmospheres is the music that plays a lot in space. Yeah, totally. And the irony for me is if he was sort of imitating or inspired by modular synthesis, the music sounds like sort of what you're talking about. It sounds like nature. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, it sounds like these natural processes unfolding in the sort of like terrifying, beautiful chaos of the world looked at through like an inhuman lens or something. <laughs> so I've thought about trying to make beautiful field recordings of wind and how hard that is. <laughs> like yeah. the way it whistles and has these kind of special effects. And then I realized like, oh, it would sound even better to and more easy to make this with a synthesizer. <laughs> like right. to get the actual thing is almost impossible. It's like, you know, photographing a uh, the moon or something. It's, it's hard to pull off and have it feel like it has that impact of standing there and looking at it or standing out there and on a windy day and hearing that whistling. The fake version almost hits harder as a music listener, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. The fake version does like a more exaggerated, deeper felt version of itself. Or yeah, like a poetic version of the image. A poeticized image feels somehow more true than a, a photograph or a literal image. It's like a blunter tool. That exaggerated, iconic version works better than the subtle, realistic version, which it exists in real life. We're talking about images of wind. <laughs> yeah, this is some hard-hitting radio. I have so many questions just in general that aren't going to make it into this conversation about <laughs> your life, about um, your work. And Say, I mean, one thing that I wanted to ask you was, I mean, I guess it maybe relates a little bit to this idea of, well, it's just about making a recording. For me, making these recordings, the Song of the Earth specifically, it really feels like a painting. Mm-hmm. In the sense that you can paint a layer and then paint another layer. Totally. And so it's this, it is a sort of document that emerges over time. And almost everything you've done, I think, is it, it feels more like a sumi ink drawing than, mm. than, an, than an oil painting in the way that you, you feel like this is, it might be layered and like deeply, you know, there's a deep sort of variegated palette, but every layer feels like, there's an immediacy to mm-hmm. the performance. It happened. It feels like it happened in that moment. Well, we were talking earlier about w- the question of when to call it good. When is the thing done? And I think I yeah. might be one of those types of artists that calls it good <laughs> earlier than others. <laughs> I I keep imperfect takes. I, I am never going to get a perfect take. Plus, also, I work on eight tracks, I you know. I have sort of minimalist limitations. I try to maximize them. I bounce tracks a lot, but yeah, I want it to feel alive. And I feel like I've recorded a couple of albums on like a 24 track before. And that I still, I still tape though. Tape. Yeah. Recorded a couple albums on computer, but even then I'm not going crazy. I'm trying, I'm treating it like a tape machine. I'm wary of getting lost in maximalism and overdoing it. And, um, that's just me. I mean, I'm talking to you, and you flourish in maximalism at times. This Song of the Earth piece is huge. It's got so much going on, and it works. And you, your mind can hold all of that. I know about myself that I, I can't. 
I sort of, and when I have even had 24 tracks to work with, those songs, I listen to them now and I'm like, they're just overwrought. They're, they're trying to do too much. The spark is buried. Yeah, I mean, there's such restraint in that, in being able to be in that moment and say, this, this, this happened, <laughs> you know, and this, is, this represents this moment. And it is all of these things. And it also is not all of these things. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just such, there's such poetry in that. And there's such restraint and just, I don't know, there's such like vision in that. And it's just something that particularly, <laughs> I'm dying, I'm dying. Um, no, particularly in this point where I'm just dying, I feel like I've been in the 11th hour of Song of the Earth for months uh-huh. i admire it so much and i'm just like it just seems like such an ideal the minimalism that working on with smaller scale you mean that and just the, and just the, the the poetry of of remembering you know if music is partly a performance and mm-hmm. partly a painting staying connected to the performance mm. and not and for me, it, I go through the looking glass and, I'm, oh, this is a painting. Yeah. This is a painting that's eternal and not, actually not a time-based art form at all. <laughs> it, there, there are corners, you know. What you make holds all of it, though. It's, it has the immediacy. Of course it does. And the, the alive rawness definitely is very much alive in your work. Uh, I think that's what's so impressive. The Song of the Earth is... is so beautiful and i only heard like an early rough mix who knows what it's like now it's got saxophone all over it now <laughs> <laughs> there's some saxophone <laughs> yeah. yeah no but it's yeah holding both like the the oil painting orchestration um really deep worked parts and then for that to carry along these the, the a flame riding on top of it that's a huge achievement Oh, man. Thank you. I'm so looking forward to our show. Me too. It's going to be so crazy. Are, are we supposed to be advertising it? Pe- people should maybe get tickets if there are any left, right? Oh, that's that's true. That's true. We should we should uh, shout it out. Yeah, it's, it's, at, uh, uh, it's on March 2nd, the Walt Disney Concert Hall. <laughs> um, Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. And Phil, you're going to be playing new songs too, yeah? Yeah, I'm going to play a short set at the beginning of new songs with my buddy Carson coming on tour playing electric guitar. Oh, yeah, I'm almost done recording a new album here. It's going to be, it's a lot of songs. So yeah, I've got tons of new songs and I'm really proud of them and we'll do some interpretation of them at this show. That is awesome. I cannot wait. We got to find time to, I don't know, yeah, just continue talking. I would, I would love that. That'd be great. Yeah. I'd love to. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to David Longstreth and Phil Elvrum for talking. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great stuff at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. Annie Fell has my eternal thanks for stepping in to record this at the last minute, too. See you next time. <laughs>